substance equals spin The propagandas win Stress feeding on my attention My countrymen, they love their fiction Words are now This made with good intentions Welcome to 1200 for another midweek podcast I'm joined by a very special guest New Zealand journalist, um, correspondent, Glenn Johnson. Welcome to the podcast. So fantastic to have you here. Thanks for having me. I think maybe we should start with a quick rundown from you uh, for our audience. Um, Just about your experience. I'm not sure how many people will have read your work or or followed uh, your career. Where have you come from? Uh, What have you been doing? Um, Yeah, so I worked initially in foreign news uh, for about 11 years, principally the Middle East and then later Eastern Europe. I was back in New Zealand um, during the pandemic or the peak of the pandemic. Um, And then, you know, 14, 16 months ago, whatever it was, I came back out to Eastern Europe uh, to look at Moldova and and Ukraine. Um, And I've spent the majority of that time in, in Ukraine just sort of tracking the situation and, and trying to wrap my, my head around what, what's been going on. So were you uh, in Ukraine from before the recent war started? Yeah, I was there in 2018. I was living in what was then called Dnipropetrovsk, but has been renamed to Dnipro. Um, and yeah, I was there to look at um, sort of the issue of HIV in the country, particularly efforts to get pharmaceutical companies to release patents so that Ukrainians could afford this this sort of healthcare. And yeah, just looking at, at the general situation there. But obviously, I've spent a lot of time in Moldova over the years and, and the, you know, their neighbours. Um, so I've always, since the start of 2017, I've followed both situations quite closely. Was the situation that unfolded in Ukraine something that was expected for you then? I remember at the time, everyone was kind of watching this thing unfold and no one well many uh people were incredibly surprised when it turned into a hot war uh well my sense so for example i left the middle east after the failed military coup in turkey in july 2016 i was in ankara covering for the the los angeles times and i just had enough so i went out to eastern europe and at the end of 2016, uh, we had the US presidential elections and I was sent to Slovenia to do a story on Melania Trump. Um, and we'd also had, this is when this sort of Russia Russia gate narrative began to emerge quite clearly. Um, then in January, I found myself out of Moldova to, to do a music story. Um, and we started seeing the largest numbers of US troops deploying to Eastern Europe since the end of the Cold War. And this constant pressure on Trump about about Ukraine. Um, and I think it was about January 2018 when I was in Ukraine, that's when Trump sort of announced, I might have misremembered the dates, so that we're going to send Javelin missile systems into Ukraine. And to my mind, it was very clear that we we're on an, on an escalatory sort of trajectory and that a war would happen if the sort of US security state wasn't reined in. Um, but there was as you'd expect in that kind of frenzied environment of of the Russiagate sort of phenomenon. Um, there was very little interest in, in approaching these these kind of issues in a, a level-headed way. That's quite a few years before everyone else was really considering that there was going to be a conflict here. How do you think the Russiagate, uh, what do you even call it, op, affected that and, and stopped it from becoming a wider consideration of... Uh, either coverage by journalists in the international scene 
or countries looking uh, in that direction? Uh, well, I actually approached an editor at the start of 2017 when I was in Moldova doing a piece saying, hey, look, we need to basically, I viewed Russiagate as a, a kind of binding mechanism, um, which which was sort of devised to to ensure that Trump, who had taken a, a more perhaps conciliatory stance towards uh, Putin and even, you know, talking about detente and, you know, the how NATO was sort of obsolete and and so I thought it was a, a um, one, it was a political pressure point on him, and it was a sort of tool to bind him to US foreign policy um, positioning in Eastern Europe. So I think it, it basically neutered any chance we had of stopping this this war. Um, and yeah, you know, saying that you were you were called a Putinist and a conspiracy theorist, and and it became very very difficult to work. But that's I think it's it's pretty clear to anyone with a you know a functioning brain. Um, that that this was going on. Um, so yeah, and so you were there when the when Russia invaded as well. No, I got there and I flew from New Zealand to Romania in June, twenty twenty two, and moved across to initially Odessa in August, and then sort of rotated all around the country for a year, um, and popped out to Moldova on occasion um, to to do some work. And I, I guess the, the big question is, what did you what did you see there from like on the ground of the country? It's something that we just have had almost no reporting on. You know, we've had a couple of I mean, here in New Zealand, but I mean, I think this is a global phenomenon. We've had a couple of journalists um, or reporters or you know people doing PR fly out there and get the military to drive them around. Um, we had some Vox Box with Zelensky, but very little from Ukrainians that are Ukrainian citizens as opposed to, you know, political figures um, or military uh, figures uh, talking about their experience of the war. Um, well, you know, I, I rent apartments. I travel by Mashrutka um, and I try to try to live amongst people as much as I can. Um but it, it, it depends on where you are um, and when you're there. So Odessa last summer was perfectly safe, basically. You know, the, um, I think I heard one missile strike um, in the first six, six weeks I was in Odessa. Then when winter, we had the onset of winter, Russia had had big, big problems with their initial sort of invasion that just lost Kharkiv and uh, Kherson. Um, and that's when they began targeting critical infrastructure um, because they needed to buy time to build these huge defences to mobilise more men. Um, and so that winter for, was quite interesting. You know, you're going five, seven days without electricity, hot water. So that was, and it was, it was remarkable how Ukrainians, like everyday Ukrainians, just sort of adapted and, and got on with it. So that was really good to see. But yeah, when you get further east, I mean, Odessa is its own little thing. Um it's got a history of tolerance. You know, it's a multi, multi-ethnic um, sort of region. You've got Ukrainians, Tatars, old believers, Jews, Gagos, Bulgar, um, this amazing sort of ethno-linguistic mix. So there is a history of tolerance there. Um, but that that has changed a bit. Um, but the further east you get, you notice the dif- different attitudes. The further west you get up around Lvov, Kiev, you notice a very different mentality. And yeah, places like 
when you get into the Donbass, um, it is very, very pro-Russian. There's, there's no disputing that. Yeah, does that answer your question? Or? Yeah, I guess it does. It, it's already feels somewhat at odds with the sense that I, I've kind of had that the entire country is at war um, and everyone from Kiev eastward is under constant threat. No, that's not that's not the case. Um, that's not to say that Russia's invasion is legal or morally right. It's neither of those things. Um, but generally, missiles, I would have had been around maybe 60 missile strikes, probably felt about 15 of them. Um, and they're always at night after curfew, pretty much. You know, there, there have been other, there's no doubt they've committed crimes. But in general, you know, you can, for example, last summer in Kiev, it's just normal, like, you know, normal life. Uh, these are big, big cities. Somewhere like Kharkiv, it felt a bit less normal because they have endured a lot. Um, but for the most part, I mean, it's getting, it's, it's, it's got worse since the start of this this offensive, the Ukrainian offensive, there is a lot of, you know, targeting behind Ukrainian lines and inevitably you're going to kill civilians or, or or hit the wrong target. But no, it's not, you know, it's, yeah, but again, it, it varies. If you were in Kherson when they blew the, um, oh, well, when the, the breach at Novokarkovka happened, then it, it's a horrible situation. Obviously, I was talking with a, a contact there and she was saying, you know, this is, I'm terrified, there's water everywhere, there's shelling. So it really depends on where you are. So the closer to the front lines you are, obviously, well, the more much uh, much higher risk you're at. And you said that the feeling among everyday Ukrainians had shifted um, over the last few years since the offensive started. What do you mean by that? Oh well, I think um, well we've got a got to look at opinion stretching back a bit. Um, so I know, for example, at the famous Bucharest summit in 2008, where, where it was announced that uh, Georgia and Ukraine would join NATO, you know, polling at the time showed about 25% support for that, with about 50% opposed. You know, when, when Yanukovych came to power after Yushchenko's sort of corrupt sort of reign, where this memory politics started to be mainlined, this Western Ukrainian memory politics... We'll get into what you mean by that after after this. Um, so when Yanukovych was elected, his first par- big foreign policy move was to extend uh, Moscow's lease on the port of Sevastopol, um, the home of the Black Sea Fleet. By 25 years, this is a source of, of big contention between Ukraine and, and Russia and also NATO, which this, is, this, this becomes quite important. Um, and that was actually met with 60% public approval because people thought, well, this is an opportunity. They, get, they, they might invest more in the coast. We can revive our shipbuilding traditions. Um, so there was still very clearly, you hadn't got this complete breakdown yet. And then obviously Maidan happened. Um, and since then, I think attitudes have hardened a lot. You know, the, the post-Maidan governments, are, we can get into it in more detail perhaps later, have sort of stirring up Russophobia. And obviously other people are angry because... You know, they see, you know, Russia supporting uh, the separatists in the Donbass. So attitudes really began to change, I guess, after that. And with the invasion, which, again, I have to be clear, is illegal and morally wrong. It's also, in my opinion, absolutely provoked. That has hardened attitudes even further. It's very difficult to gauge how the sort of rage um, in Western Ukraine, Kiev, um, obviously very, very strong 
anger towards Russia. Even Odessa, I was noticing a lot of it. Uh, Dnipro, I noticed a lot of it. One of my my good friends is in the Ukrainian diaspora. We met in Georgia 12 years ago, something like that, 10 years ago. She was always very pro-Russian. She's from Dnipropetrovsk. Speaks Russian, doesn't really speak Ukrainian. Lives in Texas in the US. And even her, she was saying, you know, I used to really, you know, I just thought the Western Ukrainians were crazy, like these radical sort of rabid nationalists. She's like, but now after seeing what Putin's done, and this, this war, I think they probably had a point. So you, you begin to see this, you know, it's a major, massive strategic blunder, I believe, that the so-called special military operation, and it's obviously unleashed a lot of horror, and it's counterproductive. Um, so, yeah, the, the, but again, you know, there is a stifling free speech environment in Ukraine. So I also have people who say, you know, uh, uh, the messaging across media platforms is we're going to have our victory. We're going to liberate Crimea. We're going to liberate Donbass. And maybe, I doubt it, but maybe. Um, but that's when you're bombarded with that sort of 24-7 and this under this threat of knowing that there's this, you know, you've been, um, you're at war. So a lot of people do believe that, but also a lot of people would say to me, you know, actually, we're like the death toll is staggering. It's horrific. And this isn't being reported. It's, it's changing. Um, we're starting to see more and more uh, looking at death death tolls. So, for example, I think I, f- I forget the minister, uh, but the minister came out about a month ago and said, you know, since the beginning of, of the war, 300,000 Ukrainians have become disabled. I mean, that, that tells you something pretty, pretty clear. But, you know, people I know when they when they trust you will say, you know, actually, it's not worth it. Maybe it's not worth it. Like, do we want to lose? Do we want this devastation over Donbass, which we actually don't really care about? You know, it's, and that's that's that is actually very widespread. But yeah, if you try to report this immediately, you're you're apologising for the war and you're a Putinist and all these horrible narrative tools that sort of constrain what what is being allowed in um, into the media. You know. Um, you mentioned the term memory politics. I think it's probably best to touch on that, uh, if even briefly, before kind of, kind of continuing with what's happening in Ukraine and then and moving on to Moldova. So you just want to give a, a quick definition of that and and the examples that you see of that happening in Ukraine? Yeah, well, it's the basically the instrumentalization of history for for political political means, uh, political ends. In Ukraine, it's very complex because it is a complex society. Um, and you've got to sort of initially look at who the main actors in the Ukraine war are and then sort of break them into their constituent parts and look at the history associated with it. And so obviously the Russian state is an antagonist in the in, in Ukraine. It's one of the you know the very obvious actors. Then you also have to look at the Ukrainian state, which is also an actor in the Ukraine war. You also then have to look at uh, the separatist regions, so this kind of civil civil uh, sort of actors against the, the state, so this kind of civil war. And you've got to look at the geopolitics, um, so NATO and the US and Britain in particular. And each of these sort of break down into different little parts, but you've really got to go back to mid-1800s Galicia, you had this emerging Ukrainian national idea, it's poets, it's ethnographers, and a, a kind of moment of, of Ukrainian national awakening. And I'm not a historian, this is just my research, but I think it's solid. Um, and obviously, 
this sort of hardened in World War One, and then during the interwar period where the Ukrainian nationalists didn't establish a, a state, basically. And you had the emergence of, emergence of Italian fascism, Bluton uh, Bowden, you know, Nazi shit. And this was internalized by the nationalists. It was adopted by them, uh, particularly the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, um, which is a complex group to look at. Um, but for the purposes of this, we can just look at Stepan Bandera, Roman Shukovich, and Mikola Libed. There's, there's, a, there's a bunch of, of people, you know. Their basic idea is we're going to establish a, an ethnically pure Ukrainian state, one-party state, not a, not a democracy, a one-party state. And ethnically pure is very important. That means we're going to cleanse Poles, Jews. And, yeah, so they collaborated with the Nazis. They envisioned that they would sort of rule their territory with, I guess, the Reich as their security guarantor. And, you know, okay, they, you know, horrific things happened in World War II. We can avoid those for now. But they did, you know, the Nazis were like, well, no, you're, you know, you're not ruling alongside us. You're subordinate to us. Um, so they arrested the leadership, but the, the OUN carried on. Okay, they fought the Nazis, they fought the Soviets. Um, and then obviously the Red Army won the war on the Eastern Front. So a lot of these ultra-nationalists were displaced into refugee camps in uh, Western Europe. And, you know, the, the, the spoils of war regarding um, World War II was basically German and Germany's scientific expertise. This is very well spelled out in a book called Blowback by uh, Christopher Simpson. So you had this operation beginning to um, recruit German scientists and whitewash their records. You know, some had performed uh, experiments on humans at, at Dachau and bring them to the US. The, the Soviets were doing a similar thing, but my understanding is not on the same scale. Well, this is expanded out into, you know, got this incipient Cold War, so recruitment of ethnic groups that are vehemently anti-communist have incredible grievances. So that could be, you know, Latvians, uh, Guard of the Fear or the Iron Guard from Romania, and in the case of Ukraine, the OUN, UN. And yeah, so they recruited what was the OSS, and then later the CIA recruited them. And, um, you know, it was a bit of a disaster. I think it went on for about a decade. And then the most valuable assets, they helped bypass immigration procedures set up in the US, uh, whether, you know, Mikola Libet in particular, who was trained by the Gestapo, uh, was funded by the CIA to set up a, a research center called Prologue. What began to happen is these ultra-nationalists, like hardcore Nazi collaborators that, like, genocidal in the extreme, they began to revise their history and, and frame themselves. This is all, this comes from historians, Yeah, this is established stuff. This yeah. is not, um, this is not <laughs> the opposite. This is not uh, you or us rewriting the history in the same way. No, no, no. As we were explaining. This is, you can go and find these books and you can look this up and like, hey, yeah, that did happen. Yep. Um, and so they sort of whitewashed all the the ugly stuff, you know, the the gunnings down, gunning downs of villages and, you know, burning people alive in, in barns and, uh, you know, slitting people open with bayonets and, and all the genocidal horrific shit they did. Um, and basically, yeah, this was preserved and, and codified. It's very, very widespread. The recent example of uh, Yaroslav Hunker and the Canadian Parliament is just one more example of what's been going on. So they set up their researching centres, publishing houses, newspapers. And, yeah, you know, following the, the Soviet dissolution, 
my understanding is this stuff, there would have been existing sort of networks, I imagine. And this was sort of re-imported into into Ukraine and in the process of creating a new national sort of identity, well, post-Soviet identity. You sort of had this ready-made formula. Um, It was very slow, uh, but Viktor Yushchenko was the first to start, you know, naming, you know, Stepan Bandera as a national hero. You had, you know, the institute, oh, it gets so, so complex. Um, but so you can basically say you've got this kind of un cult and it's, it's very widespread and it began to sort of spread its, its mythology into society um, very, very deliberately. This is why you see like Bandera portraits and like politicians' offices and stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a very, very, it's far right. It's super manipulative, very well connected. And for the West, I believe that's always been, I think they're sort of our allies. Well, obviously they are. (laughs) You can't really dispute it at this point. And yeah, I think, again, you've got to look at, you know, for example, the far right in Ukraine. I mean, it's quite, um, you know, I view Azov as different to Pravi sector, for example. But yeah, it does look like sort of the UN's ideological progeny during uh, Maidan. There's a very good uh, Canadian political scientist who's, who's looked at this extensively. They instigated a lot of the violence we saw in Is Maidan. This Yep, yep, Ivan yep. Kachanovsky, yep. And we're probably responsible for a majority of the shootings from, you know, the Music Conservatory, Hotel uh, Ukraina in, in Maidan. And it's super creepy. I was up, I was in Kiev a couple of months ago and I was just taking a walk around that area, around Maidan and up at the memorial, this, this shrine to the, what they call the Heavenly Hundred. And it's run by the, administered by the Institute of National Remembrance, which has been totally penetrated by these 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 un sort of cultists, particularly a historian called uh, Vladimir Vyatrovich. Um, and it's just like watching myths be made in real time. So yeah, this is what I mean by memory politics. Um, and this is, you know, I think Zelensky was kind of opposed to it. I don't think initially, I don't know what to make of Zelensky. Well, initially, you know, my view was at the time and sort of 2019 that he was... You know, to do well in media, you've got to be a pretty cynical person. Um, to do <laughs> as as well as he did, you've got to be pretty pretty onto it. Um, very manipulative, have very, you know, almost sociopathic. Um, and but initially, he seemed to go down the path. You know, that mince might mince two might be implemented, and you know, he was he was elected on a, a platform of peace. You know, basically, which shows Ukrainians before the war, despite even Maidan and the Donbass there was still support for reaching a peaceful settlement. And then, yeah, he flipped and he's basically just, th- to my mind, he's thrown his, his, um, his lot in with these, these ultra-nationalists, as is evidenced by clapping Hunker in the Canadian Parliament or wearing MTAC apparel or, you know, awarding honours to Azov neo-fascists or, you know, the continual na- renaming of streets, etc. So I think yeah, it's been a very successful project. And we've seen that playing out in Western media to some extent as well over the last few years, right? Um, I remember when uh, some of the whitewashing of Azov first started, there were a few of us going back and just finding all these articles from Time magazine and NYT, The Observer, talking mm-hmm. about how Ukraine is corrupt and full of Nazis. Um, and suddenly that was just off limits. You know, it's like, oh, actually, they're not really Nazis. You know, you, you can't say this uh, because it plays into 
uh, Russian propaganda, but it went beyond that. It, it was a some of these groups began to be celebrated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, what you know, um, so these these volunteer groups went off and and fought in the Donbass basically in 2014. They were the sort of frontline guys, and they have been been um, presented as the public has. It's very, very common for people to say, even a liberal, so one of my friends in Kharkiv, who's very supportive of LGBT rights, um, of protecting uh, minorities, you know, she's like, okay, yeah, these guys are really, really scary. You know, I know that they're dangerous to society, um, but they were the first to go out and protect us and they're still protecting us. So who am I to judge them? What she means there is based on their ideology. This is incredibly dangerous. Um but I, I think we also need to be, it has to be spelled out that Ukraine is not a Nazi state. I mean, this is, you know, the, the UN cult, they, they work not through electoral power. That may change at some point. I don't know. But I still think Ukrainians are very tolerant, um, good, honest people who would be horrified if all of this stuff really came out. Um but again, that you can see the way it's changing. Attitudes are changing. You know, uh, an LGB, another LGBT rights activist. I had a, a coffee with in Kiev just because I'm interested in how you know other researchers have pointed to it. But how the far right and sort of civil civil society pro EU actors have sort of fused. Well, I'd say they've fused. I don't think they're two separate bubbles that sort of support each other. I believe they're they're in the process of like Wait, a fusion. We'll do that, right? Yep. Yep. Um, and so this this activist was like, you know, I want all Russians to burn in hell and Russia to stop existing as a state. And she was in Maidan back in 2014, like delivering food, but uh, not that hard right psycho side of the Maidan, like your liberal anti-corruption types. And, you know, she even she was saying, you know, I saw the police at one point and I thought they were going to attack us. And then these guys came and all in black and, and protected us, you know. So you can just see the way that the the far right sort of used this. But again, we have to be be very careful to to not allow all of Ukraine to be defined as some just fascist backwater because it's not the case. I mean, it's it's an unstable democracy now. I mean. Zelensky is an authoritarian. There's no doubt about that. It's martial law. Protest is banned. Media is tightly controlled. Fighting age men can't leave the country. Unless they uh, have a connection. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, so it's, it's a dangerous moment for Ukraine. Um, and not just because of the Russian war, but in, internal politics as well, I, I think. But yeah, maybe I'm, I'm just a Russian disinformation dude, you know. <laughs> just loves Putin. Um, I'm not, by the way, but yeah. Okay, I'm glad you put that on record because, uh, you know, otherwise we'd be in real trouble. What do you see potentially happening here then? Because, you know, we've been watching this since, well, since 2014, really, um, but we've been covering it since the war started. And there has been quite a bit of cooling, it feels like, in terms of the Western narratives. There seems to be a lot more... People seem to be a lot more comfortable with pushing back on things Zelensky says, for example, um, pushing back on Ukraine demands. There aren't quite as many calls to, you know, create a no-fly zone and turn it into a hot war, which you know, there were a lot of in that first six months. Yeah. Like, it was mm-hmm. obscene. It was it was ludicrous. Even on some of like the new arms stuff, you know, there've been a lot more ex- like uh, acceptable 
um, and air quotes, uh, criticism of that stuff. And then, you know, <laughs> we had this Nazi stand up in the Canadian Parliament um, and get clapped. As you've said, you said before the class, you're, you're pretty sure that Zelensky would have known who this guy was, that he was clapping a Nazi. Um, and probably some other people in the parliament would have known as well. However, the criticism of that was pretty quick. Um, and many people had to resile from it and, and apologize profusely. And now you've had this political article out in the last week, which is straight up Holocaust denial and Nazi apologism. So it feels like there's a, a schism there as well where mm-hmm. the West is not so sure it wants to be involved anymore to the extent that you are allowed to take the other side now, whereas that was not viable directly after the invasion. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, again, Ukraine, it's so complex, but we need to start. So I, I agree. But, I mean, we are seeing a bit of uh, criticism of Zelensky, um, more reports into the death toll, the corruption. This is very clearly happening. So first thing, I think uh, we need to look at what the US and NATO and Britain in particular wanted in Ukraine. I don't believe they were there to support them. Again, Ukraine has a right to self-defense. There's no no question about that. And defensive aid is justified, in my opinion. But I don't believe that's what the US and NATO and Britain in particular were up to. I think they've long coveted Sevastopol. Um, I think much of this war reduces to Crimea. Um so, you know, the NATO expansions into, so I was in Montenegro for the Times to cover the uh, the NATO expansion there in 2017. And you can just look at a fucking map. It's like NATO controlled a massive stretch of coast, basically, from Portugal all the way down to Syria, which had just been heavily destabilized. And obviously Syria, you had Russia's, uh, or Russia's, uh, naval base at Tartus. So the US, uh, NATO, I was... In a story that's coming out, I think, tomorrow, a woman from Dnipro, or Dnipro Petrovsk, who I interviewed, she was saying, you know, basically NATO just wants to put their ships in Sevastopol. So Turkey's been a member, I think, I might get the dates wrong, 1952 or 1956. You know, the Bulgaria and Romania joined. Um, and obviously Georgia and Ukraine are the final sort of two pieces in containing Russian naval power projection. Um, so that's why they they sort of, I believe, use these. I believe that they wanted this war, believe that the West is so arrogant and callous that it thought it could significantly weaken Russia and possibly even take back Crimea, while well, the Ukrainians could. But I mean, this has, again, so last year you had, you know, the disastrous special military operation. So they they really made a hash of outside Kiev. Then you had Kherson and Kharkiv, these, these very successful um, Ukrainian uh, offensives. Um, but they also lost a lot of men. Um, you know, I go into the cemeteries and you just see them swelling. And now with the counter-offensive, well, it's an offensive, but the, the counter-offensive, um, I think they've lost huge numbers. I don't, I, I wouldn't hazard a guess, but well, you know, I'd say minimum two to one, very, very minimum. And the West, they've burned through weaponry just at, at unfathomable rates. Like there was a report, I can't remember where, it might have been Politico or something a year ago. They were basically saying, look, we've, Ukraine is firing one week's worth of javelins in one day. Like it's ferocious defense, you know? And so I think that the West is 
deeply has deeply depleted its arsenals. That's why they sent in cluster munitions because they're out of 155 millimeter artillery rounds. But often old cluster munitions as well, if reporting yep. is to be believed. That's why the long range missiles, well, perhaps. So they're just, I don't think it's understood by the Western public just how heavily Ukraine has been treated. I mean, it's the, it's the Russian army, you know. Um, sure, it was a disaster at first, but they, I think, um, sort of Ekin basically stabilized the situation over the winter. They built up this huge force. You know, they're cranking out artillery. I mean, it's, it's, and what we've seen in Zaporizhia, like I was there, is when the counteroffensive ga- began and then later, and, and just following it, you look at the gains that Ukraine have made, and it's basically a nothing. Like, and, and this is tragic because so many men would have died um, for an offense. Like, there's, there's criticism. So, Dmitry Kuleba came out, foreign minister of Ukraine, and said, you know, if you criticize the, the speed of the counteroffensive, you should just shut up. In a lot of ways, he's right. Like, it's childish, but he's right. Because, in my opinion, over the winter, there was an opportunity, perhaps, to say, oh, maybe maybe let's talk, you know. But I think the West wanted to give it one last sort of push. And um, and so now that you've had this counteroffensive sort of hit a brick wall, and, you know, the Western public's growing tired of it, um, Zelensky just, he is pretty unhinged. Um, his, I would call it his regime now. It's not, I consider it a regime. Um, super, super intimidating. I mean, pretty out of control. Um, so I think the West is starting to go, oh, maybe we're going to lose this one, or, or maybe we need to, you know. The question is, will Moscow accept this? Will, will it just be a situation where Ukraine rearms, Moscow rearms, and then well, Moscow doesn't need to rearm? It's, you know, it's, it's sort of at full strength, is my understanding. Well, it has far more material than than Ukraine. Um, you know, will it just start up again in four or five years? I think that will be Moscow's position. So, yeah, it could be difficult to end it, even if the West wants to. But again, we saw again these factions. We saw the there was a report in the Telegraph saying that you know the British Army was going to send soldiers into Ukraine and train and provide support. It was just this week gone, right? Yeah, it was like two or three days ago. Um, and then immediately uh, the prime minister came out and was like, no, 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 this isn't happening. Um, this is quite interesting. I wonder what's going on there. Were they just sort of testing the, the waters? Or, um, But I think to any sane person who's not like a drooling NAFO troll, it's time to sit down and talk and accept that that concession is going to have to be made. It's very much, you know, it's, it's sick, but those early... They did start early, even, um, kind of criticisms of the Western position of being happy to fight to fight to the last Ukrainian. You know, this is that seems to be the real stance. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there was when I first got back to Ukraine uh, in August last year, I was out interviewing just Vox Pop street stuff, different locations around Odessa. And at the time, there was this sort of thing that if you said, to the last Ukrainian, that this was a piece of Russian disinformation. That, um, mm-hmm. but most most Ukrainians I would meet, even though they a lot supported the, their soldiers and and viewed their defence as just, they could compartmentalise and see that. And of course, they could. They're smart people. Like um, that, their interests and their defence was different to mm-hmm. what the West was doing. And they were very common for people to say to the last Ukrainian. Um, 
you know, I, I interviewed a special forces soldier out in Haki. Well, I, I spent a day on a ranch with this unit while they were waiting to rotate onto the front. You know, it's like, you know, I, you know, I love Ukraine basically, and I want to defend my country, but I'm basically in bed with the U.S. And um, I quoted him. What did he say? He said, "Oh, we are being used." So people see the that doesn't mean they want to give up or. Mm-hmm. But people do understand that the West is a very cynical player and a very unreliable person to to get into bed with, you know. Yeah. Person, well, unreliable thing to get into bed with. <laughs> well, I mean, it is exemplified by its leaders, right? Um, and we've seen that play out, um, mm-hmm. you know, with Boris Johnson visiting Kiev and um, mm-hmm. other such uh, PR stunts. Okay. So you've that's kind of the Ukraine stuff. I, I mean, we could do a whole episode on that. Uh, but we've kind of got some history on Ukraine, uh, memory politics, how the current situation unfolded and what it's looking like now. You're currently in Moldova, where you've been uh, talking to people there um, and and watching the situation closely. Uh, why have you chosen to go there and do that now at this point? Oh, yeah. After I left the Middle East, I basically relocated to, to Moldova Um and just really sort of followed. I enjoy the country a lot, um, so spent a lot of years engaging, engaging with Moldova. Um, I'm right now. I'm in Transnistria, the the breakaway territory. But you know, so during COVID, so I was back in New Zealand. I wrote these documentary TV series. Couldn't get media work when I worked in kiwi fruit pack house on orchards. Saved, you know. Um, always had the intention of coming back to Eastern Europe, but with the Ukraine war, became more urgent. Um, so, and so I was w- watching for the first six, well, from from February twenty four to when I flew back, because there were all these fears that Russia was going to invade Moldova. And so, initially, I thought the government in Moldova did really, really well. They were like they emphasised constitutional constitutional neutrality, and were like, "This is wrong, Russia's." Invasion is wrong. It's illegal, which was a very good position. <laughs> like neutrality is is good for these countries, and that began to change over the past year. And it's important to understand who Maya Sandu is, what her government is. Uh, so, in a country like Moldova, where you've got similar to Odessa, very sort of delicate ethno linguistic fabric, and so in Western media, Maya Sandu is described as pro European. She's presented in a very positive light. Unlike uh, Georgia uh, Maloney is, right? Right, right. Or um, what's the, the president in Georgia right now who's, who's trying to sort of walk this balancing act between Russia and the West and, you know, oh, he's pro-Russian or the, the new Slovakian president, oh, he's a, you know. But uh, Sandu's principal mode of identity is Romanian. That's how she views herself. She's Romanian, not Russian, not, not the... Not, Not those sort of. Um, well, no. She. So I was talking with one of her uh, pol- foreign policy advisors, foreign ministry's policy advisors. Was like her. She loves Bucharest. Like Bucharest is is her is is in her heart. And so you know you've basically got this. Moldova is one of those countries that's sort of torn between east and west. And broader powers, Russia, Moscow views it as in its near abroad and that it should have influence there and ensure that its interests are at least protected. And the EU and the US increasingly, particularly the US, 
wants Russia out of the region. I mean, this is my take. And so, you know, Sanders' position was really, really good. Um, but we started seeing increased pressure over the course of the years. Things that very similar what happened to what happened in Ukraine, to my mind. Not exactly the same, but similar enough. So, for example, you had Liz Truss, you know, telling the Telegraph that Moldova should militarize, that it should be armed, that it needed protection from Moscow. You know, numerous think tanks, particularly the Jamestown Foundation, saying, you know, unarmed pauper Moldova needs us to guarantee, to make it a NATO member by any other, any other name. Wow. We, should we should provide its security. And at the same time, Maya Sandu's government is totally incompetent. So they're neoliberals, well, free marketeers. They just have no idea how to, how to implement policy. Um, you know, admittedly, they, they were up against some big challenges. So they came to power with COVID Then, sort of, you know, people in New Zealand thought inflation in New Zealand was bad. Well, it peaked at about 35% in Moldova last year. And this is a much poorer country than New Zealand. Um, so this, you know, basically by the end of the year, like around 56 or 60% of the public was dissatisfied with the government and uh, Sandu. Um, and, you know, the US was right in there. It, it's got insane at this point. Um, so basically what they did is they, in February, the Prime Minister Natalia Gavrilica resigned and she actually ripped off Jacinda Ardern and her her resignation speech was like, um, what was the famous line Ardern said? It's time, something like that. You know, yeah, it's time. It's the right time. And this was like a couple of weeks after Ardern resigned. So it was very, very blatant, like plagiarism. Um, and what happened is a security advisor, Richian, in a very untransparent process, he used to be the interior minister, uh, became prime minister. Wait, a security advisor, not even a... No, 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 advisor, like security advisor to Sandu. Not, not, not an elected representative of any type. No, no, no. And so he, but he was voted, like, because they've got a majority. Um, so they, but it was a very untran untransparent process. And immediately he started going down the securitization path, saying things like, we need air defense. Um, I've got a quote. We have requested anti-aircraft defense. We will go to all our friends and get this. But until then, we have to take care of other threats, destabilization, public disorder, attacks on institutions, hybrid warfare, disinformation, inducing No, this anxiety. sounds like so many different places right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, inducing anxiety in society, of inducing inter-ethnic inter hatred. Okay, so they, you've got, and this again, this sounds very much like what was going on in, in Ukraine. So the, the other thing to understand about Moldova is, Neutrality is um, ingrained in society, not amongst the Romanian ethno-nationalist crowd, the, the Sandu types, um, you know, the civil society proxies. And yeah, just before we move on, like between 2017 and 2021, the US spent more money on building civil society and countering Russian influence in Moldova than any other country in Eastern or Central Europe. Uh, they allocated $100 million, which doesn't sound like a lot, but in a, in a country like Moldova, that is, a, that is a lot. So we saw the government, which was taking on this increasingly sort of ethno-nationalist character, because they're just incompetent, start to do the whole securitization, militarization, let's abandon neutrality sort of thing. And yeah, since then, I mean, the, the, you know, the list just goes on and on and on. But yeah, we can we can get into that. Let's let's get right into it. So we've had a situation where you've got a nationalist president 
have a prime minister who resigned and a security advisor took uh, their place and immediately started to securitize the country uh, with the backing of uh, U.S. military, I, I guess. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, it's just been a constant stream of U.S. security figures. I mean, fucking convoys of these people. I think we it was the, the head of... European command for, for NATO was just in the country, but it's endless. Like you've got Air Force bands doing concerts across the country. What? That's that's really weird. Yeah, yeah. Well, we did a piece for the French edition of Le Monde Diplomatique about this, um, and yeah, basically ended the story saying, you know, you know, you used to have these cultural ambassadors like Duke Ellington, you know, Louis Armstrong, and then you compare that to what's going on now, like it's just this deranged shift. Um, but in concert with this, like I said, similar to um, similar to Ukraine, Moldova is a very multi-ethnic country. So, for example, last year the government banned Russian television on the Russian-produced television, uh, Russian state television, on the on the pretext, well, for the reason that they can be used to spread influence and information. At the same time, they stipulated that 50% of broadcast licensed broadcast content had to come from the EU or the US. Um, That's a hidden lead. Yeah. To, uh, to include that as a, like, you must also do this. Yeah, well, we've got the BBC Action Group coming in now to train journalists. Um, other things. So last year, they banned um, wearing St. George's ribbon, which is worn often on Victory Day on the saying that Russian soldiers have used it in Ukraine where they've committed war crimes, therefore we're going to ban it. This is illegal now because you're... That seems like a stretch. Getting, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just a, it's a celebration of of, uh, the, of Soviet victory in World War II. You know, Sandu announced that she was going to gift an annex in the National Library to the metropolis of Bessarabia, which is the Romanian Orthodox Church. Well, most Moldovans are Eastern Orthodox. Um, so she's beginning to emphasize that Romanian current again. The official state language was changed from Moldovan to Romanian. That seems again, these antagonistic are, at, at best. At, yeah, yeah, absolutely it is. And this is very deliberate. They're doing it very, and this is, again, it's very similar to what we saw in Ukraine. Yeah, they changed Victory Day from May 9 to May 8. And again, in terms of the, um, the securitization, like the Venice Commission came out and said, you know, this that Sandu was basically coming dangerously close to subordinating the SIS, the State Intelligence Service, to her office. And just recently, they put a um, a Soviet wagon from the 40s and 50s, which was used in the, the deportations. It's about 80 to 100,000 people were deported uh, from the territory into gulags and all that horrible stuff. This was put outside Parliament with, you know, sort of historians on site to explain things, personal belongings of deportees. And there's no problem with that because that's real history. This happened. Um, but I believe like memory was instrumentalized in Ukraine, this is very similar. If they also acknowledge the crimes of the Romanian dictator, Ion Antonescu, Antonescu um, and his sort of Holocaust of bullets where you know, they slaughtered 300,000 Jews in Roma, but they're not going to do that. So we see the politicization of history in a very... And this is what gets me is it's so dumb because you can just look next door to Ukraine and see um, the path this goes down. I'm not sure if it's passed into law, but Sandu announced that sep expressing like that separatism would be banned. So she's talking about Transnistria and that 
I don't have that have have it in it front of me. It sounds like but trying to start a civil war. I hope not. Um, but again, we saw very similar things in Ukraine. Um, you know, where the Donbass was framed as as terrorists, and you know, um, and also incitement to separatism. I don't know if this is passed into law. I need to check. Was was outlawed? And technically, that means you can't say as a Transnistrian, "I want an independent state." It also theoretically criminalized the the leadership in, in Transnistria. And they're not good. I'm not saying these are good political figures. They're not. And, you know, the whole thing is with, you know, pretty famously last year, uh, Merkel came out and said, you know, we used Minsk basically to buy time to arm Ukraine and train it and take back Donbass. This is what I meant about, like, since February last year, just more of this information came is coming out, like from key figures that was impermissible to say 12 months ago. Um, so that was very clear. Um, and, you know, I was here and when I first came to Moldova, NATO announced that it would open a field office in Moldova. And the same assurances are given, no, this is just cooperation. This isn't, you know, now it's at the point five years, six years later, where, you know, it's the securitization in the country is just through the roof. And the thing is, I I can look next door to Ukraine and see where this is going. Perhaps, I'm not sure, but I don't think it's, Ukraine, it wasn't defensive. It was always defensive in nature. Um, and I think the same in Moldova. And yeah, talking to people in Transnistria, there's a lot of concerns. So they are now sort of caught between Ukraine, which could just, their army is strong enough still to come in and just wipe it out if it wanted to, uh, or if it could do so legally. And now this, you know, this militarization and ethno-nationalism, Romanian ethno-nationalism, particularly that's being encouraged and this anti-Soviet sentiment and um diminishing you know transnistria everyone speaks russian basically well a lot of most people speak russian you know you do see signs in russian that are actually romanian language but yeah it's it's so worrying it's just i just can't believe how debased the political class is that they can look at ukraine and go we're going to basically do the same thing in, in moldova unless i've misread it which is possible but i don't i don't think i have no i mean it just on the raw facts there's a, a reason why people in Transnistria are concerned, right? Like, even even if we hadn't just seen that happen in Ukraine, it would be concerning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, what what happens if it does go in that direction? Like, doesn't it just completely destabilize the entire region? Uh, well, I'm not sure. I was talking uh, with a contact here uh, who said basically, you know, maybe the leadership, they see the situation they're in and they're just going to capitulate. But also it's more complex than this because, okay, imagine if somehow Transnistria was reintegrated into Moldova. Well, you're going to have 300,000 voters that are very pro-Russian and that's going to destabilize the politics of Moldova towards those pro-Russian parties, like towards the socialist bloc, towards Shore. So yeah, it's just, it's a it's a mess. It's like, and this my, my kind of point here as well, so when, you know, 60-odd percent of the public views neutrality as their best security guarantee, which is also means they implicit in that is that diplomacy should be front and centre, you know. I mean, obviously, it, it would be extremely hard in Chisinau to stand up to the US, you know, pretty poor country, um, US is super powerful, they know how to, uh, how, to, how to sort of get in there and like a sort of virus infect politics and, and society, you know. Um, and yeah, I'd, I'd worry just as an aside, just, could the same thing be happening in New Zealand with, with, with the China pivot, you know? Um, I mean, uh, New Zealand needs to be extremely careful about, you know, uh, the only common sense I've seen has been from the Māori, uh, Te Pāti Māori, who was saying, you know, neutrality. Who are, who are being um, 
framed or accused of being pro-Putin. Just it's not even ironic at this point. It's it's just sad. It's just it's lazy. It's the most debased. Like it's like using I, sh- I shouldn't say these words, but you know, Vatnik. It's like the new. It's like a new description for a Jew or an African American or like these actually have very hard racial undertones. You know, being accused of being a Vatnik. It's just such a horrible word. Um, but it's, you know. But now it's, it's okay to just use it on social media wherever you want, right? As long as you have a Ukrainian flag in your um, header. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's disgusting. Yeah, it's the most like poisonous media environment I've seen. Not just mainstream media, um, but yeah, social media is just out of control. Social media is slightly more toxic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Somehow. I yeah. don't know. I don't know why. I think this is probably a. Um, yeah, I think it's again. This is an extension of of the Russia Gate stuff that that really helped create and cultivate this environment, and we've just you know reach a level that is. I feel like I I am in the invasion of the body snatchers, like just surrounded by these pod people who are just pointing and screaming. You know, so it's a terrible environment. Um, yeah, it it was very clearly a a divine a dividing line strategy around the Democrats and Republicans that just stretched internationally and intentionally. Uh, but yeah, of course. The, the Democrats aren't good guys. You know, mm-hmm. the, the DNC aren't, aren't good institutionalists. I mean, I'll, like, are they better than Trump? Sure. But the, the US state and all the institutions involved with it are horrific. Like, this is not really up for debate. And if you try and say, oh, yeah, but... Russia's worse. Putin's a, a worse man. He's more evil. Um, Xi Jinping is a, a worse, a worse person. Okay, like fine. Like uh, I'll maybe concede that, um, but it doesn't make the counter true um, either. You know, I'm, I've from being in countries like Syria, Libya, Iraq, where the West played major roles, Somalia. And really destabilizing, like Libya is done. Like, yeah. good luck ever ever fixing that country. It's just not going to happen. It's it's cooked. Why? Because they wanted to get rid of a non-compliant dictator. Well, Gaddafi wasn't all that bad, you know. Um, I, I say that unapologetically. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I lived in the, the Middle East for for eight and a half years. Okay, there were a lot of really bad things about Gaddafi's regime. No doubt, but there were also some very, very good things, and I don't think he deserved to die in a sewer, you know, after being bombed to hell by NATO. And I also know a lot of Libyans don't feel the same way. So, yeah, when I look at it, I view the West, actually, the US, as far more. I don't, you know, I, again, back to Moldova, I didn't believe that. You know, I thought if he could have, um, you know, put in the initial sort of invasion they would have got to it if they could have they would have got to odessa linked up with transnistria it's, it's very different difficult to tell um would have they been open to then negotiating and perhaps then withdrawing on the base and this came out as you pointed out earlier with you know this tentative agreement that was reached in istanbul that's that's um what was her name fiona hill but yeah th- th- i think pretty clearly there was some kind of agreement reached, and that there was going that Kiev was also open to exchanging land and neutrality um, for peace, and that this was very deliberately scuttled by the West. Whether or not it's true, I don't know. I tend to believe it. Um, 
I mean, there's no like gain for Ukraine there. Like, so someone else had to at least have a modicum of influence, right? Yeah, yeah. So again, my point is, I don't believe that Putin is an imperialist. He is definitely an autocrat. He's definitely gone gone very far into the hypernationalism. You know, uh, he's a gangster capitalist. His regime is very clearly corrupt. But I don't believe he's an imperialist. Whereas, can I say the same of the United States and NATO? No, I can't. So to my mind, I view right now the US State Department as the most dangerous sort of force on the planet right now. It doesn't mean that the Republicans would be any better. They, they want war with China just as much as the Democrats. Uh, these people are deranged. I mean, and for some reason, speaking common sense, you're, it just doesn't exist. It's, yeah. uh, it's just insane. I mean, there's no one else in the world that has a number of military bases the US has, and it's not even close, you know, and they're pouring mm-hmm. money into these things. Most of the corporations are, that kind of fund these things or, like, supply these things are, are US um, or mm-hmm. or in Europe. Um, but, yeah, apparently kind of joining those dots, those very obvious dots, um, is beyond the pale. Um, what is there some way out of this, or do you think we're on train tracks here? Um, that's a big question, I know, and probably one that's not answerable. Yeah, I think um, the West is pretty much incapable of learning from its mistakes, and these are very glaring mistakes. Like, yeah, I mean, it's, it seems like, yeah, it's pretty much, you know, it's going to end in sort of the smoking wreckage of a car wrapped around a tree. I think that's the... Uh, the the trajectory we're on. Well, if you know, we're already there, basically. I mean, so you know, I know BRICS. A lot of the world also is very unhappy with how the West, well, NATO yeah. and the US. Have, we don't get to see behaved. this much, right? The global South is like heavily <laughs> against the, what's happening here. There are other forces at work. The United States is declining in power. China is rising. I view. I don't I don't view having, you know, multiple poles as a bad thing because we've seen what the US has done in the past since the collapse of the cold, uh, the collapse of the Soviet, uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union. I mean it's spread democracy everywhere, right? That's got to be a good thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Um <laughs> I mean yeah, I mean these professed values are very good. Um, yeah. But I just view, view it as a, a super extractive, hyper-violent state. Like, yeah, um, and the kind of um, shorthand used to describe the stuff as like rules-based international order is just disgusting to me. Like, oh, it's, what rules, it's, what order? It's Doctor Strange love. It's like you know, precious bodily fluids type stuff. Like, uh, it doesn't mean anything because we don't follow the rules. We bomb when we want. By us, I mean the, the US and, and NATO. You know, we're, we're not. We don't hold ourselves to the same standards that we hold competitors or enemies. Um, so the rules apply to them, but not not to us. Yeah, which is like so blatant for anyone to see. It's like this shouldn't even be something you know potentially controversial. Well, we might end it on that note. <laughs> it's been so good to kind of talk that through with you. Uh, and get a, I'm going to say end-to-end understanding of what's been happening in the region, and especially going through some of the discussion about memory politics and how that's been instrumentalized to 
bring the Ukraine um, and the West on board with like this increasingly overt extreme nationalism as a tool for the West uh, to destabilize the region. It's, yeah, it's incredibly worrying. Um, And because it's also the kind of thing that can happen in any post-Soviet state, right? Like... Yeah, or just look at Latin America, like the right, mm-hmm. right-wing death squads. Like, there's a long history of, of doing this stuff. Um, so, that, yeah, it's just basically policy. I mean, it's just what they do. Yeah, horrible. <laughs> forget, forget about healthcare, you know. Um, yeah, 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 but we'll, we'll pour $150 billion bucks into an absurd war in Ukraine that we helped start and we actually wanted. Like, it's just nuts. People want to find your work elsewhere or, or find you elsewhere um would they be able to do that uh yeah just my website um just uh glennajohnson.info um yeah there's a range of stories i use instagram but that's just for friends and yeah so if anyone's interested they can can look there and, and see a range of work from around the place fantastic i'll check that into the summary below uh you can catch that there thank you so much for joining us uh, glenn it's been really good yeah thank you for having me good good chats that's been another episode of one of 200 midweek podcasts uh if you've enjoyed it give it a share um don't come into the comments uh calling us putinists um i'm just gonna delete them and possibly block you at this point where we're that far down the track now folks yeah send it to a friend uh rate us um let other people would know we're out there uh, and otherwise just watch out for our current events on the weekend uh when we get back into trying to cover this just disgusting election campaign it's getting more and more unhinged by the day hopefully we'll see some light at the end of the tunnel pretty soon um i hope to cover a a few more of the positive aspects um that are coming to play now we'll catch you next time Amongst the people every day In this vindictive, forgetful fucking rain It feels like we're on the road to hell